Love Talk Radio. It's State of the Union night here in Washington, D.C. Barack Obama delivers his State of the Union address to Congress. We are going to cover what has he said before, what is he going to say tonight, and what can he do to regain popularity with the American electorate. This is Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is the most popular talk show that you've never heard of for politics. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. I'm delighted to be sitting here freezing with you. Oh, it is. You've already complained to management. It's been noted. God, you're getting old. And to my 11 o'clock, she is the former, uh, she's a former general counsel to the Maritime Administration, Obama appointee. She is the former counsel to the House Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson. She's the Honorable Denise Krapp. Hello, Denise. Hi, Justin. And to my one o'clock, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He is longtime Washington insider, Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And to my right, which is where he usually is, theoretically and in reality, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce, serving at last count under four presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer and a very distinguished and handsome fellow from the Stimson Center. He is Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And, and joining, us, joining us remotely today, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Forty, the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, everybody. Glad to be here, even uh, from a distance. Well, you're here in spirit. We uh, miss you, and our best obviously goes out to Gail. Hope she has a quick recovery. But as so much. as we talk today is State of the Union address. In approximately five hours, the Sergeant of Arms will announce the President coming into the House chamber in a joint session of Congress where he will deliver his annual report to Congress on the health and state of America. There is a lot of buzz going around this. This is a huge speech possibly for Obama, especially since his ratings are about to be as low as they could be. They are only surpassed at this stage in his presidency by George W. Bush and Harry Truman. That being said, uh, let's start off at the 50,000-foot level because we're obviously going to be spending a lot of time as we watch uh, Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan on the front porch of the uh, White House through our partners at CNN. Uh, 
let's start off at the 50,000-foot level and work our way down. Uh, let's start with you, Alan. How important is this speech, in fact, to Barack Obama? Well, it may be nothing. States of the Union get lots of attention and, and uh, excitement inside the Beltway. Most of the country isn't paying attention. Um, this one could be interesting. Uh, it may well be nothing, I mean, uh, when you get down to it. What we typically expect from presidents is to say the State of the Union is good. He will not be saying that. If he does, he becomes a laughing stock because 3% of America in a poll just this week thinks that the State of America is good. Um, he, he's got a choice here of continuing this sort of confrontational uh, Republicans are driven by politics and don't care about the country uh, line, which uh, is insulting, I think, uh, and not particularly helpful to him. Um, he may say, but I'm going to fight it with my pen and my phone, which he talked about earlier. He's going to sign executive orders and make phone calls to people who have some influence. That's pretty pathetic um, when you really think about it. The executive orders uh, don't really take you very far in this, in this country. Um, phoning up people, big deal. Um, he, what I don't expect, but what I would like to see is instead of trashing Republicans and talking about he's, how he's going to go outside the normal system, I would love to see him say, all right, I've won a few, you guys have won a few. In, in the last two months, the last uh, we have achieved a bipartisan agreement on the, the budget that the last two years, and in recent days, a bipartisan agreement on the agriculture bill, I would like to think that maybe that can become a template for how we can make uh, really good use of this year for the American people. Congressman Al, you obviously as a member of Congress and as also a former staffer on the Hill, you attended many State of the Union addresses. Yeah. Uh, as a Democrat, former Democratic member of Congress, looking at this Democratic president, in your eyes, how important is this speech to Barack Obama? Well, I agree with Alan uh, just a little bit. Uh, I don't think the speech in and of itself is going to make much difference. If it's a good speech, it can be quickly forgotten. It is what the president does after the speech, and he presumably uh, is intending to uh, you know, go around the country and, and, and build on it. If he gives a good speech and he organizes that post-speech tour properly, it can, uh, it can do a lot for it. If, uh, if, 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 he, if he doesn't, I think it's, uh, it's a one-night shot. Bob Hines, let me go to you. Obviously, Speaker Boehner is looking at this very closely, and as is the rest of the Republicans in Congress. Do you think that the Republicans are going to keep an open ear to uh, any of the plans that he has or any of the peace offerings that may come out in, uh, in the speech? Uh, well, what I have uh, seen and read recently indicates to me that the president is going to uh, basically lay out some uh, programs and approaches that are good campaign activities for going into the elections in November, but uh, they're not... Uh, they're not likely to go very far, I don't think, and I think he'll just blame the Republicans uh, 
uh, eventually uh, for not getting them done. Uh, it's I don't mean to be really negative, but I, a lot of what we seem to be hearing now is uh, we have to spend money on this, that, and the other thing, and uh, it's, it sounds a whole lot like you know somewhat of the same old thing, maybe tied up in a new ribbon, but it doesn't seem to me to be uh, particularly uh, bipartisan, if I put it that way. And, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not so sure, but it doesn't sound good to me. Uh, but but Bob, following up on that a little bit, when 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 we hear at least uh, some of the leaks that have come out regarding what the president may cover in a State of the Union address, from what I've seen, and and maybe the rest of y'all disagree, there's not really anything that he's swinging for the fences for. Does Denise? Does he seem a little bit hesitant right now, or a little gun shy? No. Why not? Sorry. I got- you're breaking up a little bit. I can't quite hear you. No, I, I, I don't think he's hesitant, Justin. I don't, I don't think he's gun-shy. I, I, what he is hoping to do is, is what Al just said, which is, you know, have a good speech and then follow it up by going to the state that you need the votes in. I mean, we are less than a year out from the midterm elections. The Democrats are weak in certain areas. The Republicans are weak in certain areas. There are seats that we didn't expect to um, have to contest, that we're contesting on both sides. So he needs to go into those states right now and start shoring up his base, and that's what he's going to have to do. But, but Alan Moore, it, it seems to me that instead of shoring up his base, this would be a great opportunity for him to at least kick off the next couple of years of his lame duck term to at least open up the doors and saying, look, I may not have been the one guy who's been up front knocking on your doors. Today begins the new age of my final term as president. I will be more visible. I, yeah, I don't see any apologies coming from him. Um, but what I, as I said before, I would like to see him say, we've had some success. Let's build on that success. Of course, it's going to be a political speech. It's an election year. He's got to go. Uh, he's, he's, he, he really, really, really wants the Democrats to uh, maintain control of the Senate. Uh, not that that assures him of any success, but at least it gives him a, a, a stronger wedge in this crazy world of, uh, of Washington. Um, but but you know, all indications are that he's going to talk some about these so, so-called executive orders, things that he can do with, with the stroke of a pen, which have symbolic importance, um, but are really pretty small potatoes. Um, we used to talk about Bill Clinton uh, in his uh, small ball. Uh, at least he would try to do something legislatively. Executive orders, you don't even, you, you ignore the Congress, and you sort of stick their nose in it. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm guessing that though that that, that that may be where his emphasis is. Denise Crap. My concern is if he does focus on executive orders, he's going to start getting legal challenges. I mean, okay. when you start telling people you have to do things because of executive orders, the first thing the lawyers are going to say is, but why? An executive order is not a law. It's not a regulation. It's not a statute. So he needs to focus on the legislation and needs to focus on the regulations because if you try to do things purely by executive order, you're going to get a lot of pushback. Well, let's talk about that, for example. I mean, you know, when we talk about the executive order and his ability to use it, and he's used the executive order as a tool previous in his presidency, he just did it today, used an executive order to sign into, into rule 
that all federal contract workers have to make a minimum wage of $10.10 an hour. I would think, Denise, or actually you can go to Congress for now, I would think, Congress for now, that in this day of, look, we're trying to fix the stalemate, doing an executive order the morning of the State of the Union doesn't send a real promising vibe up to Capitol Hill. I am absolutely amazed at uh, what we've heard so far in this program about this big bad president and how he's been picking on the Republicans and standing in the way of progress and criticizing them and what have you. What happened to his first term in which he couldn't do anything without the entire Republican majority coming down on him and just flattening it? In fact, there were many of us who were saying, why, does he, why is he taking this lying down? Why isn't he fighting back? And so I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the poor, poor, picked-on Republicans. Carl Tubin. On the other hand, oh, oh, hold on. I'm sorry. Congressman, I'll go ahead and finish on, up. On the other hand, I think the speech may well be much more positive than we have indicated here so far. Uh, I think he may be inviting the Republicans to participate, uh, and, and and I think it would be very good and very smart politics to lay out some things, some things that Republicans could do if they wanted to, and obviously some things that they have no intention of doing at all. Uh, and on that, he can begin to build, you know, his, his comeback speech that, that he'll be making around the country. Carl Tubin. Well, first of all, uh, as far as the executive orders goes, he has uh, John Podesta in the White House, and John Podesta is evidently brilliant in, in drafting executive orders that uh, meet legal standards. Uh, secondly, I think that he's going to be more conciliatory in this speech than, than we have uh, discussed here thus far. I think he, he, might, he, he might use the theme you touched on it, some other touched on it, the fact that now uh, three major committees in Congress have gotten together to put legislation on the table, the Farm Bill being the last that might pass. And hopefully uh, he'll reach out and say that why, don't we, why can't we do some more of this uh, uh, with Congress and have a, a, a successful uh, year. But, but, but Bob Hines, again, yeah. I, I go back to the question that, you know, again, on a day that you're supposed to be bringing everybody together and talking about the strength of the union itself, signing an executive order, and this is not the first time he's signed kind of misplaced an executive order, according to Republicans, you would think that he's almost a little bit cocky on the fact that Congress has a 12% rating, and his at least is upwards of 40. Well, you know, what I would like to see is a little bit of continuation of what we had in the last few weeks where we were able to get a budget, continue resolutions, we go through the rest of the year without any problems uh, with respect to shutdowns and things like that. And, every, and, you know, we seem to, people seem to be talking more, uh, openly and uh, working across lines of, of, par- of partisanship, more so, and the, and the White House was a part of it. And I thought things were looking a little bit good, but 
what you seem, what I seem to feel uh, in, in some of the things I've read recently about what the White House wants to be doing tonight seems to be slipping a little bit away from that. Now I understand it's a it's it, we're starting a, a, a campaign for you know when one third of the Senate and all the House gets reelected this year, and I know that's that's a political reality. We all understand it, but I would hope to see a little bit more of what I was listening to a month ago than what I seem to be hearing now. I don't know what's going to happen. I'll wait to hear it tonight. Alan Moore. Yeah, I couldn't help thinking, and I'm not sure that he, that he issued the executive order today. If he did, he'll talk about it tonight, or he'll explain his intention to issue it. It doesn't really matter. He's apparently either done it or going to do it to order that federal contractors have to pay this minimum wage of $10.15 an hour. And it it, it just strikes me as, as, as hugely ironic that at a time when many Democrats and some Republicans are talking about the need for greater infrastructure investment in America, and uh, uh, others are saying, well, if we're going to spend it, let's make sure we get the most mileage out of our dollars. And what you've got is, it looks like, still another requirement on people who want to become federal contractors. Well, hold that thought because I want to talk about that because we're going to talk about what's actually going to be on the agenda for tonight. And I know infrastructure is one of the key points that's been leaked out. But I want to go one step back for a second. And for those of you guys who are uh, not inside the Beltway, I do want to talk about exactly what is an executive order. Uh, Alan, our resident fact checker at large, can you kind of give me in 30 seconds what exactly a, a, an executive order is? Well, and I, I may well defer to, to Denise here. Uh, let, let, let her Denise, start. Denise, well, why don't we start it and we'll have right. her fact check it back up. <laughs> this is not a setup. This is not a setup. You awesome. know more than I know. So Executive orders are written by the president or on the behalf of the president, signed by the president, and it's direction to the various agencies within uh, the administration. I mean, you've got executive orders dealing with civil rights. You have executive orders dealing with Homeland Security. I mean, you've got a whole host of different executive orders, but what you're trying to do with an executive order is to lead by policy, because if you can't get something in via law, because if you can't get into law, you can't get into regulation, then what you try to do is do purely just within the administration. And that's what it does. It's just binding on the administration. But, Alan, it, it sounds like going off of Denise's uh, description, which is fantastic, it sounds like almost this is a tool by the president to use saying, look, you won't pick up my agenda on the Hill. Well, guess what? I have my own toys. It, the, the, here's the problem. As, as Denise uh, pointed out earlier, he has, to, he has to act within the confines of existing law, and if he pushes out beyond where existing law allows, then they, there will be lawsuits. And if he loses those lawsuits, he looks ridiculous. So it's, he, they can come out and trump, uh, trumpet the great things they're doing by presidential power, but every time you do an executive order, you risk the next president coming in and undoing it. There's nothing permanent about it. And, and, and to liken it to, to legislation is a gross exaggeration of, of what they really are. They are marginal, mostly symbolic acts intended to make a political point and affect actual 
activity in the world at the slightest margin. Congressman Al. I, I disagree. You disagree. Go ahead, Congressman Al. I think many, uh, many executive orders have been very, very useful, very positive. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Uh, when I was uh, chairman of, of, of a subcommittee with jurisdiction, we passed uh, on the Energy and Commerce Committee, 42 zip, incidentally, with Republican help, uh, a complete rewrite of the Superfund bill. The Superfund, for those of you who don't remember, uh, was uh, a, a bill designed to help clean up where really bad stuff had been put in the ground and, and, and around the environment. Uh, it uh, it didn't ever get past the House. <clears throat> now, you haven't heard anything about the Superfund since. And it's because Carol Browner finally said, look, you can't get it through the Congress. We'll do it administratively, including some things she could do, which is less than an executive order, and some things the president could do. And by George, they fixed the Superfund bill, so that it is no longer doing the terrible things that it was doing. It's no longer costing the fortunes that it was costing the government and, and the private sector. It worked out very well. So a well-designed executive order can do a lot of good. So let's not write these off before we even know what they are. But Congressman, now, as, as a senior member of Congress, when the president does come up with an executive order, whether it's inside your party or outside your party, does that kind of torque the members of Congress saying, whoa, 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 we, this, this is our job. You've got to be very careful with what you're putting into play. Or do the members? Of, I mean, do the members of Congress understand that? Hey, the president believes this will get challenged in court. That's his decision. Well, my my, my recollection is that when uh, they did it to the Superfund, Congress was breathed a huge sigh of relief, so that they didn't have to take a whole series of very controversial votes that would have got it done that way. Denise Kraft. But there's a difference. With what happened, as you mentioned few minutes ago, that was 42 to zero. We're in a very contentious environment. And I do think that by putting this through an executive order, he's opening himself up to litigation. And we've already seen... Denise, before you go any further, do you think that the president knows this? Do you think he's oh, going God, forward yeah. with it, that knowing he's going to have a legal challenge? Yes, because when you write executive orders, what happens is somebody's in charge of drafting it. Then it has to go through the entire administration, and everybody gets an opportunity to chop off on it. I've done it many times. You combine the comments, you get them back, you do the edits, you end up going up through OMB and you give everybody, you know, the downsides and the upsides. So somebody has put on a piece of paper somewhere that, yes, there is a downside to this. And the downside is that it, since we are in a litigious environment where they're challenging um, the decision, the, the, uh, the recess appointments, I mean, that's already up before the Supreme Court. This is the type of a decision that could go up to the Supreme Court. And it... It's not a sure win. I mean, I, I, I respect John Podesta. I, I really do. But nothing is a sure win anymore. Yeah, Go ahead. I, I want to remind everybody how the law, how laws work in this country. The, the Congress passes a law. Both houses the same language. The president signs it. Then the real rulemaking begins. A law tends to be big, broad frameworks that lay out fundamental <laughs> principles, guidelines, limitations. And then it goes back into the executive branch where the regulations that are used to implement the law that flesh out all of the details are written and prepared. That's where you fixed stuff. I don't know much of, I don't know 
I, I know very little about Superfund, so I'm not going to debate Al's characterization of the great things that the executive order did, but I would venture to guess that the key was in the regulations that, that a White House has the power to help uh, guide. There's a whole office inside OMB at the White House that has to, re, has to review and sign off on all regulations, making sure they are consistent with the law and that to the extent there's flexibility, reflect the priorities of, of an administration and hopefully avoid fights in the future. But that's, that's, how we, that, that's how the system works. When you try to step beyond that uh, with, with executive orders that usually are intended to be a little bit of in your face, which has certainly been the, the experience in, in the last five years, and it looks like where we're going now, I think that's when you do, uh, you are trying to score political points, and you do tend to invite uh, congressional uh, pushback and possible, possibly legal pushback, depending upon the content. Is, is this where you start singing, I'm just a bill? You're better than Schoolhouse Rock. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, come on. You, oh, he doesn't get it. I'm looking at I Al do. and Carl. I know Maybe. you get it. You and I do. Carl Tubin. <clears throat> well, you know, that it might be the wrong way to do this, but I think he's kind of throwing this out there at the Congress to say, look, I can do these things by executive order. But in, in a sense, he, he's hoping that maybe the Republicans will react to this in a positive way and say, well, let's start looking at legislation that we can team up on, as we've done three other times in the past seven weeks or two months. So, yeah, well, and Congressman Al? So far, from the other side of the table, we're hearing about all the terrible things that he can do. And we haven't the slightest idea what's in that, what, what he's going to do or what he's going to say. And it doesn't necessarily have to be negative. For example, uh, if, if I were doing it, I would uh, begin the speech by saying we have had some successes in recent days. Uh, and the Republicans have been very helpful in and in, in name some things. Let's continue doing that. And then lay out your agenda, the things that you hope to have there, so, so that they have to stand up and say no to something that he's invited them to participate in. That's not going to make him look as bad as uh, as we're hearing but, here. But going back, going back to Carl's point, you know, in in, in looking at some of the stuff coming out from our friends at Politico, you know, they were they were talking about uh, the fact that. You know, no one's real sure, as Al said, is this really just chest thumping or is there some meat to him saying that I will invoke executive action? You know, the one thing that I looked at was Jay Carney's comment was he's an American citizen, quote, and it stands to reason that he might be frustrated with Congress since most Americans are. That doesn't mean we can't get things done with con Congress He's also very optimistic, unquote. So, you know, again, but Denise Krepp, going off of his past history, where we look at, you know, his ability to really use the executive order and his unilateral authority as president, we look at that, this seems more substance than hype. 
he has the ability to do it. He's going to be using it that power judiciously. You're not going to see an executive order every single day. Uh, and if the question is going to be how it's implemented and how he works with others. I mean, the smart way to do this is to do what Congressman Al just said. Of, let's talk about the successes. Go with what Carl said. Let's figure out how we fix this together and focus on that. If he goes negative, we all go negative. But if you go positive and you start talking about the fact that people have to have three jobs in this country to be able to pay for their children, then that's a winning story. Well, we're going to, we're going to take that as the final word for this segment. We're going to continue our coverage of the pre-State of the Union tonight. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the domestic issues that he's looking at that are on the plate and the challenges that the president's got selling Congress. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics.
Yeah. We, we can talk. Um, Alan Moore, let me go back to you on the question. The question was, for those of you who uh, may have gotten stuck in the uh, remote feed, uh, the question is, um, when we look at the president bringing up economic inequality, are the Republicans going to push back on this? I mean, this is some of the bootstrap pulling up mentality of some of the hard workers, i.e., your uh, Senate members and your real big Tea Parties in the House. Yeah, I think I think Al was really tracking right on the point here. The, the there's no agreement on even what inequality means, um, and and when you look historically. Um, most Americans in the last 30 years have seen their incomes or standards of living actually increase by around 30%. Now, when that thir takes 30 years to get there, that's a long time, and it doesn't feel like you're making much progress, and it means a lot of two-earner families when we used to have one-earner families. Um, the people at the very top have done far, far better than that. Now, they got pounded in, the la in 2007 and 2008, but they've made the, the, the biggest recovery of what they lost. Plus, well, they didn't lose everything, mostly. Um, and, but, but when they play this inequality, they talk about inequality, it can mean a lot of different things. It can mean the difference between the very top and the very bottom, average incomes, incomes within quartiles, deciles. It really gets pretty complicated. And, and Al cuts through all of that by saying, Let's not, let's not pound on envy and beat up the people who are wealthy, some of whom we admire a lot, whether it's athletes or actors or um, people who have made fortunes with new businesses and social media and so on. We may all hate the big bankers, but there's also some grudging admiration and, and a notion that, gee, maybe, maybe someday me or my kid or my grandkid could, could get that kind of a break. I don't want to take all of their money. We have increased their taxes in the, in the last couple of years between 15 and 50%, depending upon where their money comes from. And, 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 but Al focuses in on the fact that, that the middle class feels beleaguered. They don't feel like they're advancing much. Many of them have lost most of what they had, and they're really worried about their kids. They're worried about about their kids' safety, they're worried about kids' educational opportunity, they're worried about their kids getting jobs, and that's where the, the heart of the, 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 the argument is for this grand sweep of people who are kind of a silent majority, but, they'll, but they will vote, and they will, they, they will vote out of anger or out of support, and I think the president needs to talk to them, and so do Republicans. Bob Hines, from a Republican yeah. standpoint, is is Barack Obama taking a risk if he brings up inequality as a major point? I don't. I don't think he's going to. But I, I think it would be. You know, class warfare is not a nice thing, and it's not helpful. And it, it in particularly in election year, if people drift into that area it's it's going to be uh, a really wasted year when we could get something done uh, there are ch there are obviously there are lots of people as Alan said as, as Alan said that you know are not doing as well as they would like to be doing and it's it's oftentimes not their fault at all it's a problem of it's a problem of having jobs it's a problem of, of, of having the mortgage paid that kind of stuff needs to be worked on 
we've got to find ways to improve education, improve uh, education not just intellectually going to college and law schools and medical schools and whatnot, but, but uh, training for jobs. So if the electronic universe is exploding and uh, there will be an awful lot of technical jobs that are going to be awfully interesting and good, we've got to find ways to get, move people into those kinds of areas so they can get a good job. You know, There's no reason why it can't be done, but if we do that, if we do that, the you know some of the things like uh, this idea about uh, requiring uh, federal contract workers to pay a national uh, minimum wage, you know, it's it's ridiculous to think that you have the same cost of living if you live in New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles than you do if you live in Tupelo or you know Green Acres someplace. It's just different, and it's you you can't. You can't do it in that. If you do it in a sweep like saying it has to be done this way because it's our way for the national, it doesn't work on all kinds of economic regions all across the country. It's got to be done region by region or state by state. States know what they ought to be doing. Let the governors do what they ought to be doing, the state legislators. They're the ones who ought to be doing that kind of work. You know, I heard a a great quote last night uh, from Newt Gingrich, of all people, He's, you know, he was talking about the unemployment uh, benefits bill, extending unemployment benefits out to 99 weeks. When you look at that, his comment is 99 weeks is an associate's degree. You know, instead of trying to worry about how the government's going to put money in your pocket because you can't find work, how about trying to create your own future, creating your own employment track, take the 99 weeks or take the 66 weeks and get an associate's degree or learn a trade. Now, obviously, Congressman Al, you're going to look at that and just snarl at that concept. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how you snarl. Talk like a pirate. Talk, yeah, Talk exactly. Like that would be no killing here until <laughs> I hear <laughs> the word. Yeah. Yeah. I... Uh, that sounds like Newt, and, and uh, my reaction is like my reaction to everything Newt says. Uh, one, of, one of the things I'd like to get in here, though, is it seems to me that both parties get so wrapped up in their ideology that they fail to present their views in the most acceptable way. Let me give you an example going back a few years and back to the 70s. <clears throat> when that we were doing, we had a different kind of far right, uh, the Christian anti-communist crusade and all of that stuff. And what did the liberals do? <clears throat> they started talking about super patriots. What are these super patriots doing now? What what what, what did that tell the guy that went down on the mill? Well, the guy down on the mill says patriotism is a good thing. What's wrong with super patriotism? absolutely did not communicate and the, the Democrats kept hitting the super patriot thing for years and uh, it finally dwindled under its own weight but but not because of anything that the Democrats did by countering how they couched their position here I think the Republicans in the last five years have been doing a terrible job couching what their interest is and allowing the Tea Party to couch it in, in terms that drive a, a, a lot of people away. Likewise, how the president handles this tonight, this issue of income inequality, 
is, is going to be very, very vital. If he does it in a way that will make sense to the average American middle-class person, he's going to help himself a lot. If he goes negative and goes in some of the ways that Alan has suggested, he might, 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 Mighty, 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 Women need to be subservient to their husbands. 
So I think while the Republicans are going to be trying to go after to, Obama, how about naming the name of an individual and not attribute some well, idiotic thing that a person makes to all Republicans? $30 an hour. It's not a matter of there are no jobs. The people don't want to relocate to these areas where jobs are. Well, maybe, I, they, maybe they don't want to, <coughs> maybe they don't know about these jobs. We're, well, they're, 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 hey, they're, you guys, they're, look, we're, we're, we're mixing apples and oranges here. They're, first of all, fault, 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 fault. Oh, oh, oh. 
You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
And we're back here live at Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's happy hour here at Shelly's Back Room. After today's show, we're going to order a bunch of drinks, at least your moderator is. So appreciate you guys sticking around, even for some of the remote technical difficulties. It is a live show. Hey, uh, we're continuing our discussion, at least the five of us are, regarding the State of the Union. Uh, President will arrive in about uh, three and a half hours up on Capitol Hill, where he will address a joint session of Congress, where he will talk about his 2014 agenda. We've talked a little bit about some of the domestic items, especially the economic inequality items, uh, and then kind of got on a whole other sidetrack. Thanks for bringing us back in, uh, uh, Alan. The reality is uh, there are other things that are on the plate for our president as he addresses uh, the uh, country tonight. One of them is immigration. Immigration is that one piece of legislation that seems to be elusive to both Congress and the White House. Uh, Congressman Al, I'm going to start with you. How important is immigration for the president this year, and will this be a big point for the president tonight? I think it's a it's an important one for anybody who's running for office. Frankly, <clears throat> Republicans have a point of view that works with some people and doesn't with others, and the Democrats have the equal but opposite problem. Uh, the, the fact is that I don't think we sat down and really analyzed this problem. We got one people say that we're, we're not we're not going to do anything for the people who were already here until we could figure out how to stop the inflow of not an unreasonable position. Problem is, we don't know how to stop the influx of of illegal immigrants. And so if you're not going to do anything until you solve that problem, you're not going to do anything. So it's, it's, uh, it's a very, very difficult problem, and it's going to take more flexibility and understanding than uh, we've seen so far. Bob Hines, looking at uh, immigration as being a topic of discussion for the president and the State of the Union tonight, uh, does he have to show some leadership and get a little bit aggressive with Congress in order to make immigration work on the Hill? Justin, you know, I think that... Uh uh, from what I can gather, uh, in the House at least, the Republicans are are back at the table on immigration. They're, they're trying to decide uh, exactly how to proceed. I think that they are moving. They're going to be moving legislation. Uh, that's clear from what the Speaker has been uh, rumbling about. And I think that's a good sign. I think the Republicans need very much to uh, get on with the finding a way to uh, legalize the millions of, 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 of foreign folks who have come to America to look for a better life, which almost all of our ancestors did, <laughs> and, uh, and they ought to be, we ought to find a way to uh, legalize them uh, in a reasonable and with reasonable requirements and then and make them, bring them into the community and not have them, you know, hiding out, so to speak. And I think we need to do that as a Republican Party. Uh, I think we'd be smart to do it as a, as a Republican Party. I think it's foolish to say we don't, uh, we no longer want immigrants in this country. We're all immigrants in this country, except for the but Native Indians. The, Denise, the, does the president go up with a tone of, look, we're willing to work with Republicans in coming up with some sort of 
coalition regarding immigration? Because that seems to be the one point where we can't exactly get the pieces to fit together. Or is he going to have to take leadership and kind of like what he's done with executive orders, hey, I've, I've got my routes. Let's either play together or I'll take my football. Yes, can't solve immigration by executive order. The only way we're going to be able to solve immigration is by working together, both Democrat and Republican. And by working together, you can't assume that the Democratic Party is going to have one answer and the Republican Party is going to have one answer because immigration, there's so many micro issues in that that they're going to be very difficult to overcome. For example, one of them is the Cuban issue. Yep. You know? Yep. Are we going to open this one up? I mean, and if we do, how does that impact the politics in Florida? And um, New Jersey. And in New Jersey. How, how does that work? How do you start thinking about um, Asians, you know, when you start talking about Koreans and Japanese and, and the others? I mean, how do you do that? Do you, by the way, open up the lottery system? I mean, when we have lotteries for certain visas, I mean, there are a lot of things that are on the table that are going to make certain people very jittery. And how do you calm those nerves in such a way that you get something. And that has to be done together. But Alan Moore, it seems that there's not really a way. When we talk about immigration as the encompassing omnibus that usually comes out in the talking head shows, every, everybody's going to feel the shock of the third rail if we touch on these sensitive subjects, as Denise pointed out. Well, the, the, it's not clear to me that that an election year is the year where you can really actually solve this thing. But the Republicans uh, are are making moves to show openness to at least giving a legal status to people who are here. This coming from Speaker Boehner. Remember the Senate passed a bill, uh, a bipartisan bill that was pretty comprehensive, and the House has said, we're not taking it up. And, but we will take up elements of it, and now they're kind of making good on that promise. I don't know if that will lead to piecemeal change, but at least from a political standpoint, it will reduce some of the criticism that was beginning to hurt Republicans that they don't care, and they are shutting the doors, and they don't care about the kids who came innocently. They do actually care. They also care about their political futures. So I, I am not one who thinks this is going to be the big issue tonight or, the, or that, that, that nothing can happen, but it will be, it'll be modest things that will happen this year, if anything. But it, it, it strikes me, Denise, I want to go to you, being former counsel on the Homeland Security Committee, which deals largely with immigration issues. When, when we look at those who are staunchly opposed to even touching the, the immigration third rail, it seems to me like the people that are talking about it are the same people that are pushing for farm bill. And it seems to me that these are some of the labor forces that they're going to have to address or they've got a whole industry that they're going to have to worry about. You know, you can't have the farmer saying, not in my backyard, but yet they still need that labor force. Can the president come to some sort of solution with the Republicans to kind of keep each of them in check or keep each of them safe? He could, but as Alan just mentioned, it's going to be difficult. I remember being, um, let's see, we were in the, we were in the building December 23rd of 2005 is when I remember the last big piece of major legislation, and it was 
we're going to do it, we're going to do it, we're going to do it right before Christmas. And then nothing happened because it was very difficult to do. So if you're going to do this, you're going to have to do this now in the next couple of months. You're going to have to do it through several different committees that are going to have a varying degree of interest. I mean, my old committee is going to be interested more on the Homeland Security side, the border security side. You're going to have others that are going to be interested on the commerce side. You're going to have ag interested in the farmers. You're going to have ways and means interested in the tax. You're going to have foreign affairs interested in our relations. And if you're going to be able to get through all of those committees, because the only way you're going to get this one through is to go through all those committees. And that's just the house side. But you've got to start doing it now, which means it's not going to be as big as everybody wants, but you could move something smaller, but it has to happen again now. But on more first. Yeah, it's just really reinforce that point. That you're, you're sort of damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. So it makes everybody really cautious. If you push too hard to open the doors, to grant rights, to grant clear pathways to citizenship, you enrage a lot of people who both Republicans and Democrats are going to count on. And if you, don't, if you, if you are intransigent and refuse to do anything, you are fighting against history. And in many states, uh, fighting against crucial uh, voting blocks who are going to make a difference. So this is big-time politics, but it varies around the country, and it varies for Republicans and Democrats in those parts of the country. Bob Hines, you know, the, the Republicans have technically had a, a stand-your-ground attitude regarding immigration and how they interact with the president. Uh, is the Speaker capable of breaking that logjam inside the party? Again, the Senate passed it, seemed to have had bipartisan support. It's not even seen daylight coming out of uh, coming out of either committee or the floor of the House. Can the Speaker make it right? Uh, Justin, I think that the Speaker now has um, enough uh, support in his own caucus to move forward I, uh, to some degree. I don't know how broadly and how widely uh, a net he can, he can spread, but I know he wants to do something. And he's, I think now there is enough support. I think enough of the, uh, of some of the folks who have been more recalcitrant on this issue have, I think they've begun to realize that it's, uh, it's, it's not a really good idea, to, uh, uh, to, to say to people who've been here and are law-abiding and are working hard and raising kids and families and living in the communities, uh, we don't want you around here anymore. I don't think that makes any sense politically. I don't think it makes. I don't. It isn't the way America has always operated. And I would like to. I think the speaker finally got himself in a situation, a position where he's got enough strength in his own membership and is willing to support the idea. I think. I think he will try to do something this year, definitely. But whether he will succeed or not, I don't know. But I believe he's got the strength in his own party to help. Congressman Al Swift, I think it's important to remember something that hardly ever gets mentioned. The amount of illegal immigration has been, is being reduced. Uh, so there's a sense in which the problem is getting smaller, not going away, but is getting smaller. And that may take a little of the anger, terror, fear out of the issue, which might make it easier to make some compromises and get something done. It's not as though all of Mexico is going to move into California and Arizona tomorrow. Carl Tuvin. I hope that uh, I hope that people don't make a political issue out of this. Uh, 
I, I would hope. A little late for that, don't you think, Carl? I would hope, no, from this standpoint, I would hope that if the speaker is able to put some piecemeal things on the table and get them passed by the House, that the Senate won't turn around and say, that's not enough. That's what I'm talking about. And that the Senate would go for piecemeal and, and, and get something done. Did he scrap? You know, when you look at the Senate, you have a lot of uh, a lot of folks that are leaving. Some very interesting ones that are key, like Senator Rockefeller out of Senate uh, Commerce, and then you have uh, Levin. No, Harkin. Levin is leaving. Armed Services. Harkin is leaving. And so, the question will be, what what is their legacy this year? I mean, we were talking about the president. But he was a very powerful man that will also want to have a legacy to leave. And how will that influence not only the immigration debate, but other pieces of legislation that they're going to want to move this year? You know, you know Bob Hines, uh, we're watching here in Shelley's, our uh, friends over at CNN, and they're talking about uh, some of the reaction coming to the Republicans based off of what they're hearing coming out of the White House regarding the State of the Union. It, it seems to me one of the quotes that they just showed was uh, John Boehner, his quote of he's going to hit a brick wall regarding some of the agenda on executive orders. That it, it almost seems like the rhetoric is beginning before we've even heard the sergeant of arms knock on the door. Yes. Yes. Bob Hines. <laughs> well, it, uh, you know. I suspect that the uh, speaker has seen a uh, advanced uh, uh, outline, at least, of what the president's going to say. Uh, because if he says something like that, it's it's obvious that he uh, understands that the president is going to say something with respect to what he thinks he can do with as an executive order and how broad and how wide he can spread that. Uh, and the and the speaker is saying, you know, let's legislate rather than uh, this is not a dictatorship. This is not a this is not a, a kingdom. It's a democracy, and we, we vote. That's why there's a Congress. Alan Moore. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm reflecting here. We've been talking about executive orders, but, but, but an executive order is actually a piece of paper. There, there are also executive decisions that are made that, that can be more important than an executive order. When, when the president chose to push through the, uh, the confirmations, um, the temporary confirmations of people for the National Labor Relations Board, um, uh, while the Senate was arguably still in session uh, and we're waiting on the Supreme Court to decide on that one, I don't think that was an executive order. I think that was just an order that that uh, the Senate is not in session, therefore these guys are going to get recess appointments. When he decided not to deport uh, kids uh, who were here illegally simply because he thought that was a bad idea, I don't think that was an executive order. I think that was just an announcement. So uh, all of these things are subject to challenge. Um, uh, and and it, it, I understand the frustration. I, all I'm saying is we've talked executive orders. There are other powers that a president has to, to ignore the law, um, but they, the, more, the, the more aggressive you are, the more you're going to invite lawsuits. Um, but even in those cases, we're talking about stuff that's around the margin. And, uh, and I think that, that they're kind of thumping their chest and talking about having the pen and the phone, but 
they're not talking about massive new undertakings, and it's provocative. And uh, the Republicans are rising to to take the bait, and maybe that's an indication of where the speech is going to be. I don't know. Let's see what the speech is before we get too carried away being convinced we know. Congressman Al? Now, that's the most interesting thing that's been said around this table this evening. Let's find out what he's really going to say and then, and then comment on it. Well, we're going to do that next week. <laughs> yeah. I'll call the White House and see if we can find out. I think that, uh, that it's entirely possible that, first of all, by bringing up this we're going to do things by executive order. You know the media is going to blow that up bigger and bigger and bigger until I think a lot of Republicans feel that the president's going to try to govern by executive order. And if he were to try that, Boehner will put up a brick wall, and, uh, and rightly so. Uh, in addition to which, with the White House saying we're going to do it by executive order, what do you expect the, 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 the speaker to say? Oh, well, I guess we'll roll over and take that. No, he's, he's going to say brick wall. So this is a lot of premature arm wrestling that's going on before we even know what it is that we're fighting about. Alan Moore? Yeah, and, and it's not just the Republicans who get uncomfortable when presidents start flaunting their executive powers. So do Democrats. They know that nobody's got a, 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 a lifetime right to the powers of the president. And every time presidents come in and stretch their limits and take unilateral action, there, was, there were plenty of times when George Bush um, would be, the Bush 43 would be criticized for some of the signing statements that he would make with yeah. laws. He would say, I'm going to sign this law, but I don't intend to pay any attention to these provisions. Very provocative, very distressful for, for the Democrats. What President Obama does, he doesn't provoke them when he signs bills. First of all, we haven't passed much in the way of legislation, so there's not a lot to say that he ignores. He just simply acts differently. This bothers the Congress, not just Republicans. Republicans. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, one of the issues that we know he's going to have to address is going to be Affordable Care Act. And obviously that's going to bring a lot of attention to this part of the speech. Uh, when, when we look at health care and what his agenda will be going forward, the president, uh, Congressman Al, has the opportunity to either say, the system works, we fix the technical problems, go ahead, move on, it's law. We're hearing Republicans saying, look, you've got to either fix it or we're going to continue to fight to repeal it. Is there some sort of middle ground the president could come to tonight and bring to the floor of Congress and saying, look, we've gone down this road before, let's just fix what we've got? Or is he going to stand firm on it being a quote-unquote success in his eyes? If I were he, I wouldn't say it's been a success, it's on its way to being a success. Uh, it doesn't sound quite so in your face that way. Uh, and, and, and that's probably the way to handle it. Alan Moore? Yeah, it also doesn't sound as ridiculous. Um, what he is going, I think, to say is, look, 
it's not where we would like it to be. We've had these startup problems. We're beginning, though, to see things happen the way we expected them to and the way we wanted them to, and we feel good about the path we're on. I think we're going to hear something like that. Yeah, now, I agree. Having said that, I think that even that is, uh, is, is a stretch. All the indications so far, the numbers aren't there, the kinds of people signing up aren't there. People who used to be uninsured are still uninsured. Most of the people signing up had insurance before. There's a, there's a lot of challenges ahead. One of the biggest ones, though, that gets almost no attention and that, that grew out of the Supreme Court decision, which said these Medicaid provisions in the Affordable Care Act are unconstitutional. Therefore, you can't make all the states expand their Medicaid system. And a lot of states, mostly headed by, by Republican governors and or legislatures, said, uh, we're not so sure this is such a good deal. We're not going to do it. What you've got is a group of people who would be eligible for Medicaid, the program for the poor, if their state bought into this system, but there is no expanded Medicaid, so they're not eligible for Medicaid, and that same group of people does not qualify for subsidized purchase of health care. They're a group right at the bottom, between around 100 and 138% of poverty, who can't get covered if they're in a state that didn't expand Medicaid. That's a problem that cries out, screams for something, even if it's, we will help you subsidize purchase if, if you can't get Medicaid. But he can't right now. Denise, they are left out. But Denise, what is that something? What does the president have in his quiver that could actually be the something that Republicans and the states might be looking for? I'm the wrong person to ask right now, Justin, because I'm still struggling to make sure I got my own insurance. Uh, well, I mean, that, I mean, that statement alone, if the president does make Affordable Care Act a serious point in his State of the Union address, it seems like to me he's opening himself up for, you know, a, a landfall of hand grenades being lobbed at him. Well, if I were the president, I would not. Congressman Al. I would not make that uh, a major part of the speech. That debate ha has been going on and is going to continue to go on. There is nothing he can say tonight that is going to change the debate. But, but call, call Tubin. I think he should mention exactly as, as Alan said that uh, he has confidence that it's going to work and move on to another topic. Bob, hold on. Call Tubin. It almost seems though that with the, the focal point, that Affordable Care Act, I mean, let's be honest, the, this president has made his legacy or has bet his legacy on the Affordable Care Act. He, he, it almost seems like he's painting himself into a corner. He doesn't have a choice but to make this a key component of his 2014 agenda in the State of the Union tonight. I think he's going to mention the Affordable Care Act. I think he's going to talk about the problems that they've had. I think he's going to say that a lot of these problems have been solved. And we're going to continue to, to work on this Affordable Care Act to make it better for all Americans. And then move on to the next topic. But, but hold on, Bob Hines, you had a thought. 
Yeah, I think Allie's right. I, uh, the, the, the website problem seems to be going away. It seems that's, that's cleared up. Uh, the real question is, you know, who's signing up and how many and the rest of those problems we all know about. And it seems to me that uh, between now and the, and the, and the uh, end of March, I believe, you know, the administration is going to be uh, doing as much as they can to see if they can get the kind of, uh, of membership in the program that they, that they need to make it successful. If it succeeds, good. It's, it's a good deal. If it doesn't, then there's, an, there, then there's a new problem. But between now and then, it makes no sense to me to be, just to continue to talk about it. I think the, the president is doing as much as he can to get it done, and uh, they're working as fast as they can. And it de depends upon who signs up. And if we get enough younger people to sign up to keep the rates at a reasonable rate, the thing, will, the thing will be off the ground and be working reasonably well. If it doesn't happen, there's going to be a problem. We won't know that until after the 31st of March. Alan Moore. Yeah, if I were the president, I would take this group of people I just described, this group that got caught in the middle. They can't get Medicaid coverage, which in, in their particular states, and they can't get subsidized purchase. They are screwed. It's a very, very sympathetic cohort of people because people who make more money than they do are getting subsidized care, and people who make less get Medicaid. I would, if I were the president, I would describe that group and say, surely, members of Congress, we don't want to leave them out. If their state won't expand Medicaid, which they can do, and we hope they continue that they will, let us come together to agree to help them purchase insurance. But he's got so to sell they that message. Are not left out. He's got it to sell. A sympathetic little cohort of several million people but, from around. But the Alan, country. he's got to set that message and sell that message to people like Scott Walker in Wisconsin, Rick Scott down in Florida. He doesn't have to sell it to the states. The states make their own judgments. What he's saying to the Congress is, but in order we, for it never, to work, we never anticipated this situation. Let us figure out, let us agree that if nothing else, we, the federal government, will allow those people into the exchanges and we will give them the subsidies that they would but in order that they for that would to qualify work, for. In order for that argument to work, he's still got to get buy-in from those states where that's going to be prevalent. No, 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 no. Why? He doesn't need buy-in from the states. They have chosen not to expand their Medicaid program. But they've got a group of people who make between 100 and 140% of poverty way down at the bottom who can't get subsidized health care unless they go to an emergency room. That group was created when the Supreme Court made its decision. Nobody's talking about it. It's a very sympathetic group, and I wouldn't be surprised if I would like to see him do it. I wouldn't be surprised if he did it because it's so sympathetic. The press isn't paying attention. Why not? Why not call on the Congress? Let's at least subsidize their insurance. We're subsidizing it for people who make more than they do, and the people who make less are in Medicaid. The states don't have to do anything. Call Tuvin. I forgot what I was going to say. That's okay. We'll come back to you later. Bob, Alan has that effect. Yeah, he does. But, but Bob Hines, you know, going off of Not what, at home, unfortunately. Exactly. Not at home. How is Miami? So, Bob Hines, what, you know, hearing what Alan was saying, you know, again, though, 
when you start talking about subsidizing something, and even though this is a group that's kind of been falling through the cracks between Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act, that screams more budget deficit, more fiscal spending, and doesn't help our debt situation at all. No, it doesn't, but it leaves some people totally high and dry, and I think that Alan has a very good point. And this is a problem that's been created by the law and the decision about the law, and it's up to the president to take care of it. He can do it. uh, Congressman Allen. He can send a message up to the Congress and say, let's get this done. Congressman Allen. In addition to that, you can always come back, do that, get that problem, that that hole in the dike plugged, and then you can deal with the fact that some states are going to say, how come we're paying for it and the federal government's picking up Idaho, you know, uh, for example. And, And I think then the federal government can deal with that problem in a variety of ways to put some pressure on those states to pick up their share. Denise Crap, last word on this subject. March 4th, so remember March 4th because that's the day the budget gets released. So let's see what happens. The president could announce it, and he can actually see it in paper, but we'll see how much it costs. Well, i, I got to tell you something. You know, we, I mean, we, we've been talking about this. The other item I want to talk about is the, the dismal, dismal state of our critical infrastructure in this nation. Now, the White House has leaked the fact that infrastructure is going to be a key component of his State of the Union address. But the president, at the same time, several years ago, tried getting infrastructure through a, a, a piece of spending legislation that largely fell flat, in some opinion. The Tiger programs didn't amount up to everything. DOT took a lot of heat under Ray LaHood for the lack of infrastructure improvements. There were some Band-Aids, but we've got a huge mess in our critical infrastructure. Denise Krepp, you were general counsel at an agency under DOT. If he brings up infrastructure again, this president doesn't have a lot of credibility when it comes to dealing with infrastructure issues. Why? Because we spent a lot of money and improved a lot of different parts of the transportation infrastructure. I have to disagree with your assessment of the Tiger program. I think there was a lot of good programs. I think it moved out quickly, and I think we did a lot of good. A lot of people, a lot of people who work, there are several secretaries of transportation in several states. There are several uh, uh, business individuals that are aligned with the transportation and the critical infrastructure. You know, we're not even talking about some of the DOT stuff. The, you know, the grid problem is still a problem with electric distribution and generation. You've got all kinds of issues, even the TIGER programs. The TIGER programs are saying we just haven't seen anything more than a Band-Aid lying across right, so a lot of these programs. Would be the one that actually gets all the money? No, that's up to Congress, and it's yeah. up to Congress to authorize and appropriate that money. But the so president has been on this standpoint before. Exactly, and if Congress sees it in their will to decide to make, for example, the infrastructure bank that they've been talking about for several years, that would be very beneficial to the system. But that is up to Congress. Secretary LaHood can't produce money. I mean, as I like to tell my kids, I'm not a money tree. It doesn't come out of my fingers. It's their credit card. There's a difference. So, again, it's Congress that's the one that authorizes and appropriates the money. But in this, in this, Congressman Allen, the state that we've got currently got Congress, we've got a situation where 
We're already passing a farm bill that's going to increase spending. You're talking about dealing with a unemployment benefits package. That's another $20 billion possibly. You've got a whole bunch of other spending in the pipeline at a time where we're still not really cutting back on fiscal spending in federal government. Listen, if Congress, for all of its shouting about cutting spending, and it's not all coming from the Republicans, and it's not all coming from the Tea Party. There are Democrats that are talking about it, too. Then why, why, when the post office said, we're going to stop Saturday deliveries, in the age of the cell phone, the computer, and all the rest, you mean... Are you saying the Postal Service is critical infrastructure? I, Absolutely. No, no, no. It's considered that. What, what, well, I didn't know that. But, but what I am talking about is Congress talking about cutting. Congress couldn't run in fast enough to say, no, you can't stop Saturday mail delivery. In the, in the electronic age, they are going to, you know, it's, it's ludicrous. Agriculture bill... Well, let's see some of these guys that want to cut spending uh, start dealing with agriculture. Agriculture has been a bloated program forever. Uh, let's start with ethanol. Tell that to Tom Harkin. Tell it to anybody from a farm state. But if you're, if you're not going to if you're not going to cut where it hurts. You're not going to cut. Bob Hines, it sounds like to me that the president's going to be walking in. If he does bring up critical infrastructure and infrastructure bank, he's going to have a line of Republicans standing on the Capitol steps going, where's the money? Show me the money. No doubt about it. That'll be the question. And uh, we would be, you know, it's interesting. We have a, uh, we have a retiring senator who's chairman of the Finance Committee. And uh, a chairman over in the House Committee, Ways and Means, both have been working a long, long time, a year and a half, on some changes in the, in the, in the income law, the tax laws. It's just disappeared. Nobody, suddenly, nobody's interested in, in dealing with it anymore. The trouble is, what's happening, I think, is that too many people have seen what the outlines of what it looks like are, and they don't want to vote on it. Because it probably... Exactly. probably this, the stool out from under a lot of people who don't need to be sitting down on it. It's just, you know, it's, we're going to have to do some changes in the way we get our money and how we spend it. It's easy to get our money, we get more money, and we can do that. But we're going to have to spend it a little more intelligently. And if you want to go through the programs in the government, boy, oh, boy, and the, and the stupid cutouts in the income tax law, again, boy, oh, boy, there's all... Dozens and dozens of those kinds of places. Alan, if we want to clean it up, all we need is the will to do it. And I don't think the Congress has it. Well, I, uh, I, I absolutely agree. Congress is, is great at talking about the need to cut spending, and it is absolutely cowardly about cutting anything. Well, let me ask this question. Alan Moore, from a Republican standpoint, do you foresee that the president will call on Congress to put forth sustainable and realistic tax reform in 2014? I, if, if he does, he's not going to spend much time because it's complete, that, that one is completely unrealistic for 2014. There's a chance for 2015, 
I, I don't know. I wanted to say what one thing think? about infrastructure. Well, hold, hold on, hold on. Before we go there, I want to ask this one question. Well, we were there. Okay. <laughs> we were there, but before you go back to it, if, if the president does, in fact, bring this up, it seems like it would be a smart political move and talking points in what could be a, a watershed midterm election where the Republicans have the opportunity to gain back both sides of Congress. Well, taxes are just too complicated. I mean, he can talk about tax reform and, and all the revenue that we might be able to get. Again, the devil is in the details. You start looking at where the money is, and it's all sorts of tax expenditures that nobody wants to give up. It's like talking about getting the entitlements under control until you get into the details. What I wanted to say about infrastructure, though, was that that we talk about the need for infrastructure, and a lot of Republicans agree with that, and they have different ideas for it, but we have these federal contracting rules that make everything a lot more expensive than it needs to be. And, the, and it's ironic that the president apparently is going to be saying, let's increase the minimum wage uh, for federal contractors. Let's pay prevailing wages. Let's continue to have, have small business set-asides. Let's continue to have minority set-asides. Let's keep all the environmental and historic preservation rules in place so that if we spend a billion dollars, we can get at least a half a billion dollars worth of benefit. And, and we, we layer this stuff on. We pat ourselves on the back. And, uh, and there are some people who say, wait a second, if we're going to spend this money, we want the best people to do it, and we want to get the most for our dollars. Look at what happened with the website Obamacare. All the really smart people in high tech said, we're not going to do all that government contracting stuff and meet all of those rules. We're not even interested. And then what happens when everything blows apart? They bring the best and the brightest in after the fact to try to fix it. Wait, wait, wait. Where let me, let me, let me, let me hold on, hold on. Let me, let me, I want to I I jump in on this because I got skin in this game. Let's be real. When we talk about the website, for you to say they did not have the best and the brightest, I know for a fact that some of the best and brightest minds from the contracting side were on the Affordable Care Act, healthcare.gov site. The reality is you have bureaucrats that are inside government that believe that they know best, and in order to make the White House happy because they may want to see that GS-15 or that SES, they put forward requirements without verifying or putting out a requirements document for review. They put forward a statement of work, and they sit there and they say, this is going to work after some of the brightest minds. We've got some great tech minds here, and they warn the government that, nope, this isn't going to work. Government comes back and says, what you've got to do is change the mentality in government and the way that they oversee contracting. The brightest minds were on it. This was a show for the White House to say, bring in Google and Amazon and all the folks from Silicon Valley. That was a show, nothing but a show. There's my standpoint, and I said that. Whatever yeah. you said, okay. I don't have any idea what he just said, but... but my, my question to you, Alan, and, and let's just go this way, is I don't think what you were trying to say is that small businesses and minority-owned businesses weren't qualified. I don't think that's what you were trying to say. No, but was sometimes it, they are, sometimes they aren't. The set-aside notion all by itself is simply a diversion from getting the, the, the biggest bang for your buck. I want to take this up on another show. Every time you lay another requirement onto the process, 
you reduce the level of interest and you reduce the, the, the productivity that you're going to get. By the way, our producer, Brent Sullivan, uh, up in Syracuse. Brent, if you're listening, I want this topic on a show in two weeks. We're going to go to town on this subject. But we got to move forward. Real quick, Congressman Al. I think, I, I think that's a good program because you're coming at it from one side. You can come at it from the other side as well. And, uh, and so everybody's got something to gain and something to lose in what you're talking Trust about. Trust me, Brent Sullivan's going to have this thing booked in two weeks. I want a piece of this action. I may turn over the moderator's <laughs> hammer to somebody else. Hey, uh, we have not even talked. I'll call you out of order. Yeah, yeah good luck with that one, genius. Hey, uh, also want to talk about. I'll bring my gavel. <laughs> one of the things we have not talked about, we need to talk about, are some of the serious international issues that are facing the Obama administration. Number one, even though that talks in Switzerland are going on regarding the Syrian question, we have not seen a lot of headway being made, and it continues to be a tremendous humanitarian just crisis of all magnitude. Yet this administration still has not put forward a serious, serious plan on a way forward with Syria. Alan Moore, I know that this is a subject that you've been monitoring very closely. Does, does the president tonight bring up Syria and put forward a plan for 2014 on how to deal with some of these issues? I'm guessing there will be at least one entire sentence about Syria, maybe a couple of sentences on Iran. We've got some new accusations from the from uh, from President Karzai, Karzai that the U.S. is somehow involved in in uh, in some of these terrorist acts. It's craziness. Sounds and, like he's and, been smoking some of that product there. So yeah, he's got to talk about international issues. I don't know what he'll say about Syria. He'll probably acknowledge that it's a huge problem and there are meetings underway and it's really important to talk. Uh, we've made some progress in in getting Syria to stand down on the chemical weapons. We've made some progress in a temporary uh, agreement with Iran. There's not a lot to, to, to be real happy about or confident about uh, on the international front, and the, the humanitarian disaster in Syria goes on. Denise, crap. Let me put it bluntly. He's not letting food aid getting into harm, and he's detaining women and children. As a mother of a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, I cannot imagine being detained in Syria with my children. Let me repeat, children. There are reports that he's detaining children as young as two. But, this, but Denise, this administration has yet to put forward anything of any real substance dealing with this international affairs. This is a world crisis. When you are detaining two-year-olds, then you need to get this individual out. But Denise, it does not take away the fact that when the world is looking for at least some sort of guidance or some sort, the United States continues to, and this president has continued to, tout this as the greatest country in the world and a world leader in helping people live a better life. They have not done that in Syria. And the Russians are enabling him to hold two-year-olds. Paul Tubin. We can, we, can, we, can, we can talk all we want. The important thing is that there's, as far as the Syrian thing is concerned, they're all at the table, and it hasn't broken up. And, and they, they, you know, some they bluff and they do this, and 
they scream and yell, but they're at the table, and that's the important thing. Uh, the same thing with uh, with the Mideast. Uh You've got you've got the <coughs> the Arabs and the Israelis finally at the table talking. Now, what what's going to happen? Some, it, as I said last week, it, it, some, it sounds very depressing, you know, but they're at the table, and that's the important thing. Congressman, now one last one comment. last thing. I, I, I'll save it for future Okay, very good. Okay, last question, last part of the segment. We've blown through the, the, the segment without a, a commercial. Uh, it's been a great segment, so we want to keep that going, but we cannot finish out this show without talking about the 8 million responses to the State of the Union that the Republican Party is putting up. We have Ileana ross Lathan putting up the Spanish response, which I think is a good idea. But we also have Mike Lee putting up the Tea Party response. We have just about any member of Congress that has a camera in front of them putting up a response to the State of the Union address put forward by uh, the President tonight. My question, Bob Hines, uh, it seems to me that either through uh, the, the, uh, the minority leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, John Boehner, or even the head of the RNC, Wrights Priebus, this has gotten completely out of hand, and it, looks a Republic, it makes the Republican Party look disjointed as ever. Is this a bad idea, or is this bad leadership letting all this happen? <laughs> you stick me with a real doozy. <laughs> Good. That's what my uh, job is. I think, I, think it's, my I think it is somewhat foolish to have a whole bunch of people who are not officials in the leadership of the Republican Party. They're members, they're members of Congress, but they're not, the, they're not the speaker. They're not the minority leader in the Senate. They're not... The, chairman of a major committee that has something to do with what they're talking about, and yet they all have these great opinions of themselves and what they want to talk about. And I find it uh, uh, destructive of the party, and it, it just continues to uh, exacerbate the wounds that the party committee is, uh, is constantly doing to itself. It's a problem, and I don't know how we're ever going to get to the point where we get a little more unity and a little more uh, a followership of the leadership. And Bob, Bob Hines, and I want to say, or let me go to Alan Moore real quick before I go to you, Congressman Now, It seems that we've got everybody else giving responses for different segments. The only thing we didn't have is Rick Scott, or uh, I'm sorry, um, the senator out of uh, South Carolina, the African-American senator, uh, out of giving the African-American response. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. Well, we, no, don't need, we don't need that. Here's the thing. Nobody listens to the minority party spokesperson unless they mess up somehow. Last year, it was the bottle of water. It was Rubio reaching across for a bottle of water, which is now in the blooper reel of of State of the Union speeches. It doesn't bother me at all if there's one, two, three, or four because the, it, it, it means any screw up will get less attention, and nobody's going to pay any attention anyway. Congressman, our last segment. Bouncing right off of what Bob said, and I, I said this when I was in Congress, and it's worse now. The problem in Congress is not lack of leadership. It is lack of followership. Too many people who think that they are so important that they have to 
run ahead of uh, the leadership. And the, 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 the institution's reputation is going to fall or succeed on the basis of what the leadership does. And all these guys can do is screw up the message, screw up the process. And uh, maybe, maybe we need a, a drug that, that, that will, <laughs> instead of like Viagra. Medicinal marijuana in the NFL, maybe? Something that will make it go down. That, oh, okay. That's what we need. There we go. Carl Tubin, last, last thought. Somebody out. Rand Paul's going to give a. a oh, I, I, I can't. Yeah, he's giving the Rand Paul, the you know the Paulites a response. Everybody's getting responses. And I don't want to be. I don't want to be too partisan, but as far as I'm concerned, the more the merrier. And by the way, at 11:55, I will be giving the large white guy living in Southeast DC response to to the State of the Union address on YouTube. Uh, Bob, don't worry about it. I'm not being serious. So right now our producer is up in Syracuse, New York, just pulling his hair out going, you're an idiot. So with that, I will transition over to my favorite part of the show. This is Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the buzz, the innuendo, and the rumor going around the beltway in and out of politics. Uh, I've forgotten it. You've forgotten yours already, of course. Denise Krep, tell me a story. I'm testifying, folks, on Thursday in an open hearing talking about special assault in the military. And uh, I encourage all of you to start thinking about this issue. It, it's a growing, not actually growing, it's an epidemic that is happening in the military. Many people believe that if you call the military out that you're being disloyal to the military. My response as a veteran is no, you're not. I would encourage as many vets as possible to start talking with others to realize how significant this problem is and what we can do to fix it. Because if we're going to get future leaders in, and future leaders are both men and women, we need to fix the problem now. Right. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. Well, uh, yesterday in the paper, we have a story about the behavior by the brass next with military. And it talks about all the generals and the admirals and the commanders and all that who, who are, have been accused of uh, sexual assault. And when you read something like this, then, then you can say, no wonder why the military doesn't want to give this up to a special group in, in DOD, because they're all going to be found out. Well, we're going to be talking about this in a couple of weeks. Uh, we're putting that show together right now, but good story. Uh, Alan Moore, tell me a story. 28 years ago today, I was uh, the staff director of the Senate Committee on Commerce science and transportation, and I'm minding my own business, doing my work, and one of my staff guys runs in and says, turn on the TV, and I turn on the TV to see the images of the Challenger blowing up, and, uh, and it was horrible to watch, and it was horrible then to be part of the ongoing follow-on investigation of what happened, um, the the the, the Stupid decisions, some of which were sort of political in the sense that NASA was worried that, oh, my God, we can't postpone still again. Come on, we can make this happen. It'll work. It's worked before. Um, human error um, that, 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 that caused um, the engineering flaw. decision makers to, to ignore the advice of some of the experts on the ground that, 
we think this cold weather could contribute to a problem that has shown up. Uh, uh, Several Americans died, including a school teacher, Krista McAuliffe, who, who had a following around the country of school kids who got to, to watch this thing. And I, I was reflecting on the fact that, that uh, you know, as a bit player in the, really in the aftermath of it, because uh, our committee had oversight of NASA, it was, a, it was an important and a sad day and a reminder that, that you've got to follow the evidence, you've got to listen to the people who know, you can't ever let politics or political pressure trump the the advice of people who are paid to give it. Right. You know, and, and following on in that, because uh, that was going to be part of my, uh, tell me a story. I, I was in Florida that day at Lake Brantley High School, and I, as we did all the time, because we were so close to the Cape, we could see the shuttle taking off. And I remember it being a clear, cold, crisp day, and 55 miles away, we saw, we saw it taking off, and everybody screaming and yelling. And then we saw that cotton ball that we had never seen before. And then we walk in and we hear over the loudspeaker our principal saying that we have a problem. There was a problem. You know, the space shuttle Challenger is lost. As somebody who's been invo- directly involved with the space shuttle program, who still keeps close ties to his roots down on the Space Coast in Florida. And, and, as, and as somebody who's an avid, avid supporter of manned spaceflight, that, was, that tragic day, seven courageous Americans lost their lives, and they did so in the interest of promoting manned space exploration, manned space flight, and all the benefits we have. Mr. President, I urge you to continue and bring forward funding for manned space flight. It is a tragedy to this country that we do not. And watching China, Japan, and Russia beat us to the punch is embarrassing. That's my take. Congressman Al, go ahead. Here, here, and I have a story. I was at a fundraiser yesterday for a Democrat from Washington State named Derek Kilmer, who's in his second term, and he told me this story. And the the point is, you need to, we need to listen to our children more. We overlook how intelligent and bright they are. His wife was busy, and he ended up, amazingly, for a congressman, with his, his daughter uh, to take care of that night, and he, he took her to a restaurant. And he said, I, I really don't get an opportunity to interact with her as much. as So I talked to her about her schoolwork, and I talked to her about her friends, and I talked to her about her hobbies. And finally, I ran out of things to talk to her about. And she said, Daddy, can I ask you a question? And he said, boy, of course, dear. She said, is the health care bill really in trouble? <laughs> The kids are listening. From the mouth of babes. Good yeah. Lord. Hey, uh, real quick, a couple of pieces of intel for the last part of Tell Me a Story. Bob, you're not here, so I'm going to take your spot because you're not here. But for good reason. Go ahead. A uh, couple of things. One, two congressional races to look at. The, the outfall of the Senate open seat that is being left by Tom Coburn is going to send Oklahoma politics into a tizzy, and they're already starting off. 
expect about five or six Republicans, including the current Speaker of the State House, Congressman Jim Langford, who's already announced he's going to run for it, and probably two or more, including freshman Jim Bridenstine, being pushed to run for that one. Second race is Florida 19. Trey Radel announced today, that, or yesterday, that he will be resigning for Congress. The ink on the presses weren't even dry before people started lining up ready to go, including prospe- prospects, including uh, uh, the son of Porter Goss. Uh, we might even see Connie Mack back, and then we might even see a couple of state legislators. We know of about four. We're expecting at least six in that one. It is going to be a show. That being uh, Alan Moore. What, just one shout-out to – to the loss at age 94 of Pete Seeger. Oh, okay, yeah, we got great that. musicians of, of our lifetime. One of the first real movement musicians, message musicians, wrote, Where have all the flowers gone? If I had a hammer, turn, turn, turn. Um, but he also had massive influence on the Bob Dylans, Bruce Springsteen's, um, and many others from, yeah. from the Vietnam era. And, and he was thought to be a communist by some of the conservatives. Of he was. Hell, we think you're a communist, Al. Uh, that being said, <laughs> on that note, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift. The communist. The communist. The other communist here at the table. <laughs> and socialist. You're a socialist. Forgot about that, too. So the, the Marxist, and he's crap. The absolute complete Stalinist, that is Carl Tubin. The fascist Alan Moore. Bob Hines, we love you. Our love to Gail Hines. I am your moderator. Radio's Justin Russell. We will be back next Tuesday with our post-game coverage of the, of the State of the Union. Bob Hines, live from Shelley's back room, at least we are. It is? The place to be, and I wish I was there. So do we. We'll see you next week. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye.